0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: In this episode of Boss Files...
2: You know, you can't abandon your troops when the going gets tough. That's my operating premise.
1: Businessman Dick Parsons. His long career has largely been about turning around companies and organizations in the middle of a crisis. From Dime Bank to Time Warner to Citigroup and the Los Angeles Clippers. A Queens native, he never officially graduated from college, but he went to law school and became a lawyer, then found his way to the White House and was later tapped to lead some of the country's biggest companies. Why he says having a sense of humor was a big reason for his success.
2: It puts people at ease, and and it also helps put things in perspective.
1: Plus, he calls himself a political animal, but he never ran for office. Why? And what does he make of the state of politics in America today?
2: I think the Republican Party is in shambles, and the Democrats are so fractured and splintered that there's almost not a party there.
1: Parsons is facing perhaps his biggest challenge right now as he battles multiple myeloma.
2: You become more aware of your own mortality. That is a fact. And that modifies and changes your priorities and your agenda in terms of the things that are important to get done now.
1: So when the book on Dick Parsons is written, what will the title be? I ask him. Well,
2: I'll tell you. If I knew the answer to that, I'd write the damn book. I don't know. I don't know. I I had a working title, which was, It's Nobody.
1: It's Nobody. Wait until you hear the story behind that one. Here's my conversation with Dick Parsons. And I should note, he ran Time Warner when it was the parent company of CNN. Hi, Dick. Hey, Poppy. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. So the first time that I met you... You were here at CNN doing some talk, giving some award, and I was a cub reporter, and I said, there's Dick Parsons. I want to interview him. I've got to talk to him. And I think I trailed you around the building until I could get up the nerves to get your attention and ask you for an interview, and that was about a decade ago. So thank you for saying yes then, and thank you for saying yes now. It was
2: about 12 years ago.
1: It was 12, I think I had just started here. Well, thank you, Dick. You have been described by fortune as a kid from Queens, laid-back basketball player, who found his groove as a lawyer, the African-American who became White House insider, the accidental executive who reached the summit of American business. Does that sound about right?
2: They left out the funny part.
1: (laughs) What's that, that you're funny? Sense of humor. That's true. It's sort of hidden, but you've got it.
2: Well, I think think that's a big reason for uh, having been successful.
1: Is that you could laugh and help other people laugh? Yeah.
2: It puts people at ease and and it also helps put things in perspective.
1: I've never seen you raise your voice. Were you ever a yeller? No. Never? No. But you got your way a lot? Yes. So let's talk about that story from the beginning. You're born in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. Yes. What was it like as a kid growing up Dick Parsons, then you go to Queens, it's early 1950s. What's it like?
2: Yeah, I was, I was, and this is, you know, sort of retrospect, and who knows how much of it is made up and how much of it isn't. But it seemed to me I was just like every other kid, you know, just trying to root for the Dodgers and uh, and get home every day with your lunch money intact.
1: Just like every other kid. Yeah. Your Your mother, your father, tell me what your mom did.
2: Okay, my mom was really a homemaker, and my father was... Uh, an electrical technician. He worked for the airlines, mm-hmm. and um, we were fortunately for me. I mean, you learn about how important these things are later in life. You know, an intact family. I had, I had uh, two sisters and a brother mm-hmm. until I was twelve, and then you know the love child came along. So there were five of us, mm-hmm. and you know when we moved to Queens, we lived in a house in a neighborhood and. I thought we were just like everybody else. If you look back on it and sort of do the socioeconomic test, we were lower middle class, but that was probably 40% of America. Mm-hmm. So if you look left and right, everybody looked, uh, looked like was you. in the same circumstances.
1: Lorenzo, your father,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Isabel, your mother. Mm-hmm. But you've said your father in particular had a huge impact on you. As you sit here today and you look back, what, what was the most critical thing he did for you?
2: I, I would say um, my father was a very smart and thoughtful man. Um, he also never raised his voice. I don't think I ever heard my father yell, ever. Um, he was considerate. He was kind. He was responsible. He was, uh, he was from Virginia. And and what I subsequently learned, what they called in Virginia, a true gentleman. Um, and I like to style. And my mother was my mother was from New York. She grew up in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. She was the, the tougher one of the two. Mom took no crap from anyone. Uh, she was more valuable, to be sure. Mm-hmm. But she was uh, steel-willed.
1: <laughs> steel-willed. Mm-hmm. You were the middle child. And you've said that everybody's constantly fighting with everybody. You're in the middle of the storm trying to make peace. That's your life. So is that where you're... Leadership traits came from. Is that what made you able to succeed in the boardrooms at CBS or City or Time Warner?
2: In part, I you know I think being a middle child, I was a second born. There's mm-hmm. lots of literature about this: how second borns have to figure out how to make their way into a pre-existing set piece, right? Mom, dad, kid, uh, and how to keep everyone relatively calm so they don't get killed. Uh, so I think a lot of those things that come sort of early on in life and along the way, help later on. Um, So I wouldn't say that's the whole story, but that's a part of it.
1: And what about becoming a lawyer? Because you've talked about growing up in the 50s and 60s. You were black, you had talent, you were supposed to be, in your words, a doctor or a minister. Yeah,
2: well, that's in my mother's words, and my (laughs) grandmother's words. My mother was for the doctor and my grandmother was for the minister. Because that's what what uh, young people, particularly young men who had talent, did coming out of the 40s and the 50s. Um, I was kind of a natural-born lawyer, I, I love argument, I'm not concerned with at least intellectual confrontation, um, and I was reasonably articulate. And uh, I just, also in the 60s, you know, the lawyers sort of emerged as, mm-hmm. as the agents of change in our society and our democracy, and I thought, well, that's all cool. Why don't I do that?
1: But you weren't particularly, at least at first, it seems, that into school. You actually don't have a college degree. Is that true? That's correct. But you went to law school and graduated at the top of your class? How does that work?
2: Well, it wasn't that I wasn't into school. It was that school was relatively easy for me, meaning that I could show up do what they asked me to do when I was in school and then go away mm-hmm. and not give it a thought again until I showed up again. Um, so, you know, I goofed off in college. I had a lot of fun, but I ended up at the end of my senior year six credits short of what I needed to mm-hmm. graduate. And I was thinking about it and I, I was in, pl- I, actually, I was planning on it. But I had applied to law school uh, and gotten in and uh, found out that you could. Get this, what they call a law school qualifying certificate, which uh, I did. You had to have certain credits and certain transcript and certain grades, but I got in. So I said, "What the heck? I'll just you know, why?" And waste they a, let
1: you in without a college degree.
2: That's right. Why waste a summer <laughs> going getting six credits? And what the difference between uh, prior to law school and law school was? I got married, and my wife. My then wife sort of explained to me that she was going to work and I was going to go to school, and I was actually going to study and apply myself.
1: And you did. So I did. So you did. So shortly thereafter, you, you come back, you're in New York City, you end up working for Governor Rockefeller here in the city, and then you follow him to the White House. This is in the Ford administration. Were mm-hmm. you a political animal? Did you, did you want to go to D.C.?
2: Well, two different questions. Am I a political animal? I, I, I think the answer is probably yes, because I, I thrived in a political environment. It was not, it was not my plan to go to D.C. When I went to work for uh, Governor Rockefeller, it was my plan to work in the state, mm-hmm. and then for the for, for governor uh, uh, as one of his lawyers, and then to, uh, when that was over, to go into private practice. I wanted to be a litigator.
1: Mm-hmm. So did I. Didn't work out for either of us.
2: <laughs> Actually, I had a stint. At, you know.
1: Yeah, a little one. And so you went to D.C. Mm-hmm. and you thrived. You did well. Did you like working in the White House?
2: Yes. Um, it, it, it's very intense. I mean, everybody ought to do a job like that once in their life. You have uh, you have such a, a different perspective on the whole of things that are going on in society, not just political, economic, financial, social, because of where you sit, and you have access to whatever you need access to. But it's 24-7, 365 a year. Uh, it's, 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 it's intense, and it can burn you out. Or uh, a lot of people, it's, it's almost like a narcotic. You can become addicted to it. Did you, did you? No.
1: Because everyone runs... Everyone wonders, and we'll get to this a little later. But everyone wonders why you never ran for for anything. And so, to hold that thought. First, tell me the craziest story that you can tell me about the White House at that time and working in the administration. What actually happened behind closed doors?
2: Well, um, there are a large number of them. Crazy, <laughs> haha. Uh, crazy like oh my god I think probably in the crazy you know that's nuts category I I worked there two years a little over and um, or two years and I took one holiday my wife and I went to Montreal for something around you know just a weekend or something and as I was getting off the plane in the Montreal airport to begin this vacation, I was being paged in the airport by, I had to go answer phone, it was my it was office telling me that uh, you know I had to come back because of some perceived, by them at least, emergency. Uh, that, although, and even, here's a better one. And then I'll give you a serious one. Okay. Um, if you were at a certain level of staff in the White House, you've got what they call the drop phone at home. It was a red phone that they installed in your house, and you picked it up, and it, it was an immediate connection. It didn't range just was a connection to the White House switchboard. Right. Uh, and so we always thought, well, that was. A nifty thing um, for babysitters, because I, when you leave, you know, you always have to give a, and this is before cell phones. Right, right sure. I gave babysitter where you were going to be, or you know, I'll call every half hour to make sure, because I had three small kids. So I would say, just pick up this phone, and you know, they'll find me. And sure enough, you know, one day we we're having dinner someplace, and a waiter ran over and said, "It's the White House calling you right now." Was the babysitter? You know, <laughs> one of the kids that I don't know spit up one something. Who knows what that was? <laughs> That's the last time I'll use that the White phone, House that red board for the for the babysitter. Yeah, right. Um, so what's more, the serious, more serious ones? Um, were how things when you said what really happens? Yeah. Um, I recall. I'll give you two stories. One uh, shortly after Nelson became vice president. He was a very proactive individual, right? And he wanted to come up to the U.N. and make a speech about something or other. So he called his good friend and former colleague and subordinate, Henry Kissinger, who just happened to be the Secretary of State then, and uh, asked him to come over. And he said, Henry, I'm going up to talk to the U.N., which you could see Henry kind of blanched a little bit. He said, I need need a draft of, of a speech, something to say. And so Henry said, well, I'll, I'll work on that, and I'll give you a draft. He came back a couple of days later, because they were good buddies. You know, They'd worked together quite a long time, but Henry handed him the speech. And I was in the room, because Nelson always had his lawyer with him. And uh, so the governor took it and just sort of flipped through the pages, but didn't read it, and just handed it to me and said, here, get this in shape. And Henry looked at him, and he looked at me, and he looked at me and he said, Nelson. That's just like asking a house painter to touch up a Picasso. And you can be—I was 27 years old. Henry Kissinger was Henry Kissinger. I was like, "What is he doing?"
1: What today? did you think?
2: I thought I was, it was—it was awkward,
1: to say the least.
2: It was awkward, but I thought enough to keep my mouth shut. This was not my conversation to enter. Um, another inside baseball story, and I think it's one of the things that ultimately led to to the. Separation between the president and the vice president Mm -hmm. in terms of Nelson continuing on as his running mate. Uh, There was, it's interesting right now because there's this big focus on the fact that you need 60 votes in the Senate. It's the cloture rule. You need 60 Mm -hmm. votes to shut down conversation and force a vote. Well, when we went down in 1974, I guess it was 67 votes, it was two thirds. And there was Uh, activity on the part of the progressive Republicans, which still control the Senate, and the Democrats, to reduce it to 60, to the current 60. And it, it was an issue that the vice president could weigh in on, because the vice president is also president of the Senate. Of course. As you've seen here, with the current vice president casting votes. Well, Nelson didn't really want to, he said, that's a legislative matter. I don't really want to be substantively involved in it. So figure out a path for me just to basically make the rulings that the chair has to make without taking a, a position on either side. I have a view, but it's not my role to, to enforce my view. So anytime they got tangled up between the, you know, the forces of we want to keep it 67 and those that want to liberalize the rule, yeah. and it would come up to some kind of decision for the chair to make, we figured out how to bounce it back to the Senate which got uh, John Tower was, I think, the uh, majority leader. Uh, And they got frustrated because, you know, he's a Republican vice president. He should make a ruling. For the Republicans. Ultimately, the Senate leadership came and complained to Jerry Ford that the vice president wasn't playing ball. And that, you know, this was holding up things and that until President sort of sat down in school, the vice president said, Playing ball, right. uh, they were going to hang up the president's legislative program, which was then communicated to Nelson. And uh, maybe for the first time ever, I saw him you know, sort of cloud up, like he could do, like like there was something significant um, that was not going in a way that he thought was appropriate. He turned to a guy named Jim Cannon, who was his Chief of Staff and Principal Liaison, mm-hmm. to uh, the White House, uh, said, Rumsfeld, he was sort of Rumsfeld's counterpart in the Vice President's office, and he said, um, he looked at me. and he said, nobody threatens Nelson Rockefeller. Wow. He said, And he turned to me and he said, we're shutting this down the next day. Um, and so it went the wrong. It went from their perspective the wrong way. Nowadays, yeah. of course, everybody would say, 67 is ridiculous. <laughs> but." Uh, it was a mistake, a tactical mistake by the Senate to Republicans. Him. Yeah, because at the end of the day, he was, mm-hmm. and it was, I learned something from that, though, that, that, you know, it's a great thing to be vice president or a president or whatever, but ultimately you are who you are. Yeah. And um, nobody had more of a sense of that than this guy. Wow. But it was just. What a story. I thought. yeah, I'll get on this guy's wrong side.
1: More from my conversation with Dick Parsons after the break. You've served every Republican president since Nixon in some way, except for President Trump. You've also served as a member of then-president-elect Obama's transition team and a member of his Council on Jobs and Competitiveness. And you've called yourself a Rockefeller Republican. Do you identify with either party today?
2: Uh, Not really. I think the Republican Party is in shambles at this point in time, I mean, what does it stand for? You gotta stand for something if you're a party, and if you don't stand for anything, I think you fail the fundamental definition of a party. And the Democrats are so fractured and splintered that there's almost not a party there. So you have to think about yourself as hopefully, or at least I think about myself as a thoughtful, uh, concerned um, individual who has positions on issues and people.
1: So what does that mean for 2020? Not just in who you'll vote for, but I mean, seriously, if someone as engaged as you, in in the political system since you were, you know, in your 20s, says today neither party is representative of me, you're not alone in America saying that.
2: Well, you you, you vote for the candidate who comes closest to uh, reflecting your views, as opposed to, you know, there was a time I was never. A 100% straight party line right. voter, but when I was in New York, you know, it was it would, I had to know who the Democratic candidate was and think something special or or unusual about them, otherwise I'd vote
1: straight straight Republican. party line.
2: you uh, can't do or strike that. I can't do that today.
1: Giuliani, you were really close to to. Th- Rudy Giuliani, you helped him in his run for mayor of New York City, you, you chaired his transition team. Do you talk to him still?
2: I haven't talked to Rudy in quite a while.
1: What do you make of the work he's doing with the president today? I mean, this is a guy you know intimately well.
2: Yeah, I, I, th- I think that um, Rudy's best days, you know, first of all, he and I were law partners before yeah. he went into public life. Um, we tried lawsuits together. I'll say this about Rudy. Nobody, at least in those days, nobody worked harder. And if there were smarter people out there, I didn't know who they were. He's a very smart man, works very hard. He is, as we all have, he's changed over the course of, of time. I think his best years as a public servant, at least, uh, are behind him. I'm not, I'm not sure kind of what... He sees as his, his place or future, but it's been a little unusual to follow. Unusual. Unusual. That's the word I use publicly, yes.
1: So you never ran? No. Why did you never run for public office?
2: Um, really kind of two reasons. One, well, I liked the game or the, the, the art or the practice of politics, uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't so smitten by it that, that I didn't have other aspects of life that I had to think about. And I remember, I was thinking about running for attorney general in 1978, attorney general of New York. Mm-hmm. And I spent some time with Louis Lefkowitz, who was the then attorney general. I looked at Louis' book. Again, this was before you had Blackberries, or now they're called iPhones. Yeah. Or, <laughs> so he had a, a, an appointments book that was that thick. And the man had blocked out every day for the next year six or seven events that he was going to flying around doing all this stuff and I had a wife and three children and my family was important to me and I realized even and Louis was Louis, now Louis was an exceptional politician um, but even the bad politicians have work hard they make they may come up with poor decisions or they make they may do things that you wonder you know what causes a person to do that but they work hard at it and it's Another one is consuming kind of jobs, because you've got to be in front of the public. All
1: You're time. trying to tell me you never had a consuming job in your life, Dick Parsons? No, I did. But
2: <laughs> you, one of the reasons I told you, you know, I could have stayed down in Washington, but I left because it was, I needed to spend more time with my family. Yeah. And I talked to my wife about it, she wasn't crazy about the idea, either being gone all the time. So, yeah. so that was one reason. And the other reason was the piece of advice Nelson Rockefeller gave me. What did he say? He said, look, I'm you know, you figure out what you want to do and I'll support it anyway, but just remember don't ever need the job.
1: Don't ever need the job.
2: Don't ever need the job.
1: You mean for your, your ego? No.
2: Well, for any reason. Don't don't need the job because he was talking, I think, more, or his focus was more on financial side of the equation. And I think it's a huge problem we have nowadays. The reason that all of these characters end up, and I won't say all of them, but many of these characters end up at the end of the day uh, surprising us all by say, having said, oh, I'm for family values, I'm for this, I'm for that, and then they put up with things and they end up endorsing things. You go like, what? How did you get there from what you said your policy was, they need a the job? That was the best piece of advice he could have given.
1: Really? So let's talk about your leadership style a little bit, because you just said at the outset, I make people laugh and I never raise my voice. So Gandhi or Machiavelli, who is a more effective leader to lead through patience and love or to lead through fear?
2: You know, it's like so many other things, right? The, uh, the answer is, is a combination of both, though you never get perfection, right? So on the scale or the spectrum of patience and love and fear, I'm closer to the side that's patience and love.
1: Did it work for you? Yes. Can you give me an example?
2: I would say my whole career... Has been an example, because I was I was actually I was a pretty good lawyer, mm-hmm. but internally I went in. That's when I went into litigation. So I was a litigating partner in a big firm here in town. But ultimately, um, I got pulled sort of out of the straight practice that be made, the managing partner of the firm, because patience and love and trust side, people liked me. They could work with me as sensible.
1: The relationship side. Yeah. There's this story about Carl Icahn, and yeah. we know how tough he can be. Activist investor, he's coming at you while you're at Time Warner, you know, CNN's parent company, former parent company before mm. we, we, we got acquired by AT&T. And you, Icahn, like, doesn't think that you got it, that you can't, you know, lead what, it, what Time Warner needs at, at that point. You go to his office you walk. It's his birthday, I guess. You walk into his office with a cupcake and start singing him happy birthday.
2: No, no that's bit, is that wrong? That's a conflagration of several stories. <laughs> um, now, Carl, when when he started all this, Carl didn't really know me, but he has a playbook that he employs, and uh, with great effectiveness, I must say, where you sort of go and and by definition, you have to criticize the existing management. And, you know, threaten all sorts of mayhem. So I went and visited him, and, you know, over the course of time we got to know each other, and I think at the end of the day, it's fair to say Carl concluded I wasn't as incompetent as he might have suggested in the early days. Uh, you know, we rather enjoyed these intimate, quiet moments, uh, and we ultimately came up with, a, you know, a path out of the woods for both of us that didn't leave anybody's house you know, we didn't scorch anybody's earth. Uh, the story about the cupcake was I I, I, would, I, was in that his building. He was in the GM building, may still be. And I was over there a lot for other reasons, and I would swing by sometimes. And I swung by one time, and it turned out to be his birthday. And his secretaries were sitting outside, yeah, two of them, pouting. Uh, and I asked him, see, that's... Here's rule number one, always make friends with the secretaries. <laughs> I said, what's the matter? And they said, I says, Carlin, well, yeah, I said, what's the matter? It's his birthday, and he won't let us go in and sing happy birthday. They had the cupcake with the candle. I said, come on, let's go on in. And you did. So we barged in, and we sang happy birthday to him, and we cut his the, can, the, the cupcake into four pieces. You know, we had a little candle, he blew it out, we cut
1: And he acquiesced.
2: Yeah, well he had a piece of the cupcake, I did, and the two secretaries, <laughs> and they were happy and
1: And on with your day.
2: And he was not unhappy.
1: <laughs> so you go from being a lawyer, you're in the White House, and then you work your way up to being a COO and then a CEO. So at at Dime Bank you Quickly, in two years, went from being COO to CEO.
2: Well, that was sort of a you know the setup. I, the dime was a, uh, a client of mine. We had a very large piece of litigation for them, a sort of one of these bet the bank kind of mm-hmm. things. And I got to know, I had known the CEO, a man named Harry Albright, before. But I got to know him intimately well, and I got to know the bank intimately well. And he came to me at a point in time and said, "Look." I'm 64 years old. I got two more years to go, and then I'm out. Uh, and I've been looking around for who's the right guy to succeed me, and I think it's you. At which point, I broke into laughter. I'd never in my life. I, you know, I was a lawyer. If, if a man came down from Mars and right. said, "Where are you?" I would have started <laughs> by saying, I'm "A lawyer." Right. Um, but he worked on me over over a period of time and started talking to me about the allure of being a leading an institution as opposed to being an advisor. And so he said, I'll be here. I'll teach you what you need to know in over the next 18, 24 months. And then they're out.
1: By the way, this was not an easy time in banking. Can
2: well, it was, it was
1: it right was, before. It
2: was right before. The savings and loan everything crisis. Everything fell off the cliff.
1: So there it falls off the cliff. You've taken this job. You're probably wondering, what did I do? But I'm here. Yeah. I got to save this place. And the FDIC was coming for you guys. And you said to them, very candidly and with humility, you can you can trust us. We won't do any more stupid stuff. Something like that. I don't know a lot of CEOs who would say that. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Buffett and how he dealt with the Solomon crisis.
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, you get in you sort of figure out what is it going to take to... to uh, get this thing turned around. We would have been, the dime would have been, believe it or not, because these thrifts were huge. Yeah. Would have been the largest failure in the history of the C, uh, of the FDIC. Um, and we sort of figured out what the solution to the problem was. Hey, you know, when you're in a hole, the first thing you do is stop digging. <laughs> so that's, the, we won't do any more, you know, untoward business, I'll put it that way. Right. Um, and then how do you fix what's there? Uh, but you need time time was a big part of the uh, solution uh, And so you have to con- you have to create a relationship of trust that you know here's what we're going to do. you keep an eye on us uh, measure us as we go along but don't do something that's not in your own interest you know as soon as they come in and seize a bank, forty percent of the value of the assets go out the window uh, that was 10 well more than tens of hundreds of millions, it was, you know, it was billions of dollars of value there. So just, you know, give us an opportunity to get this thing turned around, mm. and, and we will. And you did. hmm
1: So not on, by myself, by the way. Sure, a team. So on to entertainment. hmm So then you come in, and you eventually get the CEO job at AOL Time Warner again. What you know, the previous name of our our parent company, and it's kind of a disaster. It's a disastrous time.
2: Well, not when I joined.
1: Right. right? But then what you but subsequently what, had to deal with. When
2: I became CEO, yeah, it was, and, <laughs> it was not good.
1: Right, to say the least. But you go home, before that, to your wife, right? <laughs> I got the job, right? Yeah. And she's not exactly convinced that you're the right guy for the job. Well,
2: her quote was, well, congratulations, uh, but, uh, but they got the wrong guy. <laughs> Why? Well, her view was, she said, you don't even like the Internet. I mean, again, remember, this is a period of time when things are in real transition. Um, Time Warner was old media. And AOL was the the poster boy for new media and digital. Everything's going digital and it's going to wipe out the old. And I was clearly, you know, in the Time Warner camp. And she knew that. and, and And she like many wives, was far more technically adroit and and interested and involved with kind of the new way of doing things than I was. And she said, you don't even like the internet. And that's what you're going to have to do is figure out what to do with AOL. she right? She turned out to be right about that. She was not right that I wasn't the right guy, I don't think. But as I think back on, on my AOL Time Warner days, mm-hmm. which also became Time Warner days again, um, where did I fail? I never figured out, kind of, what to do with AOL. Right. I mean, we we got, you know, the ship was foundering, and so sometimes I, sometimes people get confused in terms of how you need to really tighten your aperture. In other words, you had a whole list of priorities, of things you wanted to do and things that need to be done mm-hmm. until you hit the iceberg. Right. Once you hit the iceberg, you've got to get a new list of priorities. And they are get down in the hole, plug the leak, get everybody with their life vests on. You know, we're in a different operating mode. So I'm good at that at second that. thing.
1: You guys were really hit a very big iceberg. And you have brought this up yourself. You were the CEO with the largest write-down in the history of American business in the second year. $99 billion. How did you how did you get out of that? How did you turn the ship? And what did you think when you had to do that and the public saw that?
2: Interesting. It was um, to some extent the same approach that, that we had with the dime. All right. Have a crisis. What's the What's the root cause and what do you have to do to fix that? And then, once you have a plan, then you've got to go convince the people who matter, uh, in this case, you know, your institutional shareholders, et cetera, that, all right, we've got a plan SEC. we got a plan, we're going to get this thing fixed. But you guys have to stand down a little bit while we- You've
1: got to let us. And they're looking it. at a share price that has gone from 104 bucks to 10 bucks.
2: Less, actually, Less. Point, eight and a half at one point. My eight gosh, eight dollars and fifty cents.
1: So, how did you make the case
2: that you know the fundamental the fundamental time Warner businesses were still strong, um, and that you know AOL the AOL business hit a, a combination of two things: one, the dot com crash of of uh, So it wasn't two years after; it was like two months after I had mm-hmm. its, became CEO. I had to hit this right off. Uh, So they had the whole whole dot-com sector sunk. And then, B, people began to realize that broadband was going to unravel the secret to AOL's success, which was they had the keys to the walled garden. You know, what did AOL really do? They bought, they made emailing accessible to grandmas, everybody, right? At one point in time, 60% of the world, had their their email address started with AOL, well, ended with AOL.com. Well, as soon as broadband became available and the broadband carriers could offer their own, you know, sort of access points, yeah. um, it started to unravel the AOL
1: side
0: of in it.
2: particular. And so, we had to we had to get people. To, part of the ninety nine billion dollar write off was just recognizing that that was all goodwill; it wasn't cash money. That uh, value that had been ascribed to AOL side of the merger when we did it. Had evaporated. The so. goodwill was gone. Yeah, so you know, who am I kidding? And get people to focus on the fact that that the now combined Time Warner was still hmm. um, producing on the Time through the Time Warner sides, you know, significant growth.
1: One of the things that the that the former CEO of Time Warner, who who succeeded you, Jeff Bucas says is that you're just really innately good at stabilizing unstable. Corporations, or even stable corporations at unstable times, because, in his words, you reduce the ego in conflicts.
2: Well, you don't have you don't have uh, time or bandwidth for conflicts. Everybody's got to be on the same page, right? So, that was one thing um, we did was we got rid of the noise. You know, well, it, it's kind of. This is not a. This is not disparaging what my wife was saying because, as I said, in the end of the day, she was right. They needed a different sort of visionary to take Time Warner to the next level. Mm-hmm. But, but to stabilize in the first place, you don't need people running around saying, "Well, we shouldn't be doing this. We should be doing that." got to get everybody on the same page, and then it's not about. See, it was never about me. Um, it was always about you know, the mission. So in this case, the mission was to get the company turned around and stabilized. Mm. So anything that was inconsistent with that mission Mm. was not tolerable. Anything that was consistent with the mission, we put up with all kinds of people and personalities. But it wasn't about me.
1: So who's the best leader or CEO in America today? Who do you look at and admire, not just for their business acumen and their share price, but for 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 who who they are and how they lead.
2: Well, you mentioned Buffett. I'm a huge Buffett fan. That's the best combination of uh, of st- business acumen and common sense that I've encountered. You know, Buffett has tremendous business acumen acquired over I don't know what it is this now sixty years of of yeah. being in in the groves and being a smart guy in the first instance. But he's also got common sense, and he's, you know, character-wise, tough to uh, assail. Mm. He's also very funny.
1: (laughs) He is very funny. Coming up, as a black man in America, how does Dick Parsons assess the state of race relations in the country today? Mega mergers, like AOL, Time Warner, back in vogue today. Most recently, CBS Viacom, obviously, you had a stint um, most recently at, at CBS leading there. Are these signs of confidence in the economy in the marketplace, or are they hubristic?
2: Well, I, I think we'll, we'll slice out CBS. I just I think that's the culmination of something that was, set in motion.
1: I mean, how long have we been talking about this? A
2: couple years ago. And, uh, you know, I I was not a part of it at the end, but congratulations to them. It it makes sense to put those two pieces back together, in my opinion. Um, I haven't really looked at the terms that they negotiated. I realize the market wasn't entirely embracive in the first instance, but I think it was just something that, from the company's point of view, good idea but why why are things consolidating? Mm-hmm. I don't think it's hubris so much. I, I think it's both fear um, that to be small and not completely in control of your own destiny in these turbulent times. You know, you could get swept up on terms that aren't to your making. So, you know, getting large is one way of protecting yourself and and. Purporting to have a strategy going forward, mm-hmm. you know. If you ask people a lot, well, what, what happens next after you get bigger? Well, they can't really articulate. They can say, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, but they can't really articulate a plan. But they feel like, all right, I got all the peace parts in the house now, I can deal with whatever it comes next. But, but, I think it's the same thing that's been driving consolidation since the time I ran companies. The world, right? It's one thing to say the world is getting smaller. What does that mean? Um, it's a function of globalization, you know, when 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 I had a grocery store on a, in the neighborhood and my competitor was the guy who had the bodega across the street and another guy who had a little, you know, grocery shop down the block. That was my competitive set, yeah. you know, I was able to deal with that just on my own basis. Then markets got bigger, you know, you had to compete with people in California. And so maybe I'd have a little chain here in New York and I'd have an advantage because, mm-hmm. the, well, now it's a global marketplace and you just have to be bigger to, to compete uh, in a global context.
1: So your banking days turned out not to be over yeah, after right. time. After Time Warner, you go to Citigroup and you are chairman of Citigroup in 2009, right in the middle of the worst downturn since the Great Depression, the Great Recession. You didn't need the money. You didn't need or want the fame. Why did you do that?
2: Well, again, timing um, and getting all the piece parts right. I was on the Citigroup board from 1996. John Reed asked me to join the board, and I did. And so I was there um, through the merger with uh, Travelers. Travelers. And um, through the accumulation, not just on the part of city, but by, you know, the banking industry and the credit industry of, you know, the accumulation of all this debt that went poof in 2009. And you can't, you know, you can't abandon your troops when the going gets tough. That's my operating premise. Um, and, you know, Chuck Prince had been uh, our CEO. Chuck fell on his sword. When City took the big write-off in 2008, and we had a guy named Win Bischoff, mm-hmm. who had been the chairman of Schroders, which was an English uh, investment bank that mm-hmm. we had acquired, who we who stepped in. But the regulators, I mean, we were now, as you say, in 2009, we were now in heavy,
1: heavy. fire. Yep. And
2: City was kind of one of the entities being most fired upon, and I think the regulators felt that they wanted someone um, who was a U.S. citizen who they knew and could get their hands on if they needed to. So I got pressed into action. They asked me if I would share the bank. And I said, you know, I'm I'm not going anywhere. Um, I'm certainly not abandoning the ship. And I believe something a guy named Harry Albright told me once. He said, look, if you're going to be a part of something. Be the chair. That way at least they have to come to your office to meet. So, um... Also, I'd seen, you know, I, I was in this movie before. This was just, a, as far as I was concerned, it was just a dime writ large.
1: Well, so you'd been in that movie before. People could ask, why why did why did it happen again? You were on the board, right? You well, saw. This,
2: yeah, but this was, this was I mean, what the, was building. the thrift crisis was just U.S., this was global. Sure. It was. And
1: I, I just wonder if you think back to what caused the crisis and what could have prevented it.
2: Yeah. I have thoughts on that, but they weren't particularly relevant in 2009. It was, how do we get out of it Yeah, was the issue then. And we needed somebody who could deal with the regulatory front and sort of get them quieted down, because they really wanted to knock the bank over. I mean, it was incredible. I was like, do you guys know what you're talking about here?
1: Well, how close did it come?
2: Maybe hours. Hours? Maybe, yeah.
1: Can you take us into the room?
2: A little bit. All right, so why do I say maybe hours? There, there were certain things that the regulatory, you know, I, I think the guy who really got the joke was uh, Tim Geithner. Geithner had been, you know, the president of the New York Fed. We had he knew Citibank's balance sheet almost as well as I did, and he also knew that you, you, you know, of Citibank's uh, inter relationship with the with the banking system on a global basis, that if you if you sort of unplugged city you would have unplugged the whole damn thing uh, and so he he was easy he just needed to know he had somebody who he could call or somebody who was sensible and who was on the same page in terms of look this we gotta do and I'll keep you posted and he was okay but he had he was under considerable political pressure because as uh, even the president said once you know Dick the people are very angry with the banks, and that's something that has to be responded to.
1: President Obama said that to you.
2: Mm-hmm. Once, um, as a political imperative, so the issue is what to do. So we were fashioning, you know, a, a program that showed strong enough um, intervention and 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 assertion of control hmm. by the Washington regulatory. Uh, Establishment, but that didn't dump the bank, you know, in the curb. So he got it. I think, you know, Ben Bernanke got it. Uh, It took a while to persuade Sheila Bair, who ran the FDIC, who was a big player here, right? um, Got it. The guy who's now chairman of Citi, um, you know, I'm terrible on last names. John, 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 John. Starts with a C. He was, he was the then controller of the currency. Uh, But Sheila had a a big hand to play, and we went right down to the wire Mm -hmm. with her on some things that I suggested to her, if if the FDIC took certain actions and went left, it would have resulted in a, a, a run on the bank, not by individual depositors but by the secondary market and funders. Right. You know, that's where the bank gets its funding.
1: So within hours. But you got her to turn your way.
2: Yeah. How? I think ultimately, she could be persuading her that she could trust us to... Yeah. That, that, that acting precipitously was not in anybody's interest, particularly the FDICs, and that she could trust us to work this thing out.
1: Do you think, Dick, I mean, after 10 years, 10 years now, after the financial crisis... There are still no women or minorities leading these big banks. Do you think if more of the big banks had female leadership at the top, or at least more women near the top, the financial crisis would have been as bad as it was?
2: That's a good question. No one's asked me quite that question. They've asked me why are they not, and how how things could be different going forward. But looking looking back. I would say no, because the women who could have gotten to the top in those days would have been formed by the same forces that affected the, the guys that got to the top. I don't know that they would have that they would have come with enough force and numbers to change the way the system works. Mm. That's what This was a systemic problem. It wasn't an endemic, a problem. No. So if there had been, if a third of the banks in the world had female leadership um, coming out of the 90s, would that have made a difference possibly? Because that would have been enough number that mm. a different sensibility could have changed the way the system right. worked. But, but, you know, a few females would have been, they would have succeeded because they succeeded within a framework that existed, and they would have probably carried it through or been thought of as just outliers and not to be followed by the rest of the industry.
1: Well, so we're still at a place in time where we have no women and no minorities leading the big banks. And there was that congressional hearing earlier this year when all of the heads of the seven biggest banks that were asked if they thought a woman or minority would, you know, succeed them and none of them raised their hands.
2: And they all gave the same excuse, pipeline.
1: Right? Well, should we? Um, should that bother us? It bother[s] yes. me to see. Does it bother you?
2: It's troublesome because I do think, as I said, if maybe a third, mm-hmm. and it's interesting to see what's going to happen to the Congress because here it's happening. You know, one or two pioneers or trailblazers or whatever you're going to call it—they're not. That's not enough to, to change the system. You got to have. You, you got to have depth and and weight on your side. If a third of of, of the economy, were run were run by women. It would be different because it'd be enough of them that that sensitive sensibility would would begin to you know turn the wheel in a different direction.
1: Up next, Dick Parsons is facing perhaps his biggest challenge yet as he battles cancer. Let's talk a little bit about race in America. Um, as a black man in America, a black, mainly Republican man in America, how would you assess race relations in this country today?
2: Uh, Well, it's obviously, you could look at it in one of several ways. You could say the problem has been festering and and now that we've just, because of Trump in large part and, and those who feel empowered or emboldened to act under this new umbrella of leadership, the band-aid has been ripped off. Um, I was not one of those before. I would have said things are getting better just slowly and perhaps too slowly, and you need you need a little crisis on the side to get people focused again. Crisis got bigger than I thought. And and maybe maybe the those who feel like the band aid has been ripped off are right. You know, I read, I don't know who it was, James Ballman or somebody said, the fundamental, the essential issue that America is going to have to deal with is race. And they said this back in the 50s or 60s or something. I would not have said that myself. I would have said we've made considerable progress since the time I sort of got on the road Mm -hmm. um, trying to build a career. And I think we have. But I think race is still at the core of... uh, of a lot of things that, that we, from a soul point of view, from a cultural point of view, have to deal with.
1: You lived it. I mean, there was this point in time, a long time ago in your career, when you were practicing law and a friend of yours who was a partner essentially said to you, We need a quote, real white man for mm. this job. Mm. Is that right?
2: Yeah. Um, and, you know, then he looked at me and so, said, Well, I didn't mean that the way it sounded. And, you know, we sort of chuckled it off, and we both did what we had to do. But as I think about it now, Mm -hmm. uh, there were what I now think of as a surprising number of Americans, uh, not all all of whom live in the flyover states, and not all of whom are- Careful
1: what you call a flyover state, sitting with the Minnesota girl.
2: Yeah, I know. (laughs) And not all of whom are, were, were, you know, in any respect deplorable. They would, you know, just like you and me, you know, went to work every day, dressed properly, spoke properly, seemed to do all the right things when they left the house. Who, who underneath it all, still carry a lot of racial uh, imagery, attitude, stereotypes that, you know, when everybody, you know, when things are going good, like old Warren said, you know, you don't know who's not wearing a bathing suit till the tide goes out. When the tide's in,
1: everybody looks great. Right. Um, so is the tide out right now?
2: Yeah. And, some, and that's the biggest surprise to me um, of the last election, you know, the 2016 elections. Well, the biggest surprise was that Donald Trump won. And the biggest surprise underlying that was that, he tapped into a large group of people, a much larger group than I would have anticipated, hmm. who felt that we have been left behind.
1: but is is that because capitalism has failed to be more just or just enough for more well, people? You
2: know, I remember something I read when I was in college. I actually did read one or two books in college, you know capitalism was being was described as being red in tooth and claw. It is. Uh, and the, the, the role of government, that's why I was a Rockefeller Republican, mm-hmm. the, the role of government should be playing is not to supplant it or replace it, mm-hmm. but to guide it where the tooth and claw get a little too red, red and bloody. We haven't done a great job of that globally.
1: So right? is, is that how you would explain the rise uh, among Democratic voters in support of socialism? I mean, you look at Gallup polling in the last year, more Democratic voters will say they view socialism positively than will say the same of capitalism.
2: Yeah, because we'll excuse the expression, but what do they know? Uh, you know what so, do you mean? Well, uh, so, you know, we have enormous number of examples of failed socialism in the last 50 years. So that, you know, what does socialism mean? Mm-hmm. You know, when I was in college, they said it means from each according to his ability, to each according to his needs. Now, who can argue with that? That's a, that's a very appealing-sounding thing, but that's not, real, that's not reality. So, you know, that's, that's one thing that hopefully, I doubt that'll happen, but it would be wonderful to get into a textured discussion on a national basis of what you know what does capitalism mean? How does it work? What does it mean? What does socialism mean? Oh. How does it work? what it means? But going back to your question about racism and how all this plays in mm-hmm. um, America is a funny place. In fact, I think people are funny. When things go well, it's because of you. It's something you did. I'm a smart guy. you know, we're good people. Things are going well because of some contribution uniquely that we're making. When things go badly, it's somebody else's fault. It's somebody else's fault. That's the human reaction, or at least it is in this country. For a whole lot of people, for a whole lot of people, uh, things were going badly. And um, here, when things don't go bad, we have to find whose fault it is. Not our fault, right? Right. Point to somebody. And I think one thing that the current president did for his base was to give them, you know, people, essentially, to point to as people of color. So, it, and I mean, he's been trying to focus everybody on the Mexicans or the Latin Americans coming up here. But the underlying issues of, you know, sort of race that, that have, have surfaced and have re- kindled this, well, it's their fault, it's their fault, it's their fault, The things aren't going well. I think, I think, you know, if we, history may suggest that the one thing we end up owing Donald Trump is bringing to the nation's attention, there was, that there was, you know, there were millions and tens of millions of Americans who were feeling aggrieved, left out, um, bereft, and, and Represented, representative less. Like, mm-hmm. who do we talk to? Nobody talks to us. Nobody cares about us. Nobody knows we're here, um, and we're hurt. And obviously, we need to figure out. This is the, my problem with the current direction of things. Instead of trying to figure out how to bring everybody back together, and say, you know, we're all in this together, and we, you know, we're going to succeed together or hang separately. Mm-hmm. It's, it's divisions again. It's like, well, if we can just keep those people out and get these people down and get those other people back in their proper place, it'll all be great again for us. It'll all be 1950 again. Well, that's not going to happen.
1: You saw it firsthand a few years ago when you became the interim CEO of the Los Angeles Clippers. This was right after the Donald Sterling controversy, his racist remarks. What did you learn? from that experience about racism in America.
2: Well, that it's 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 still a third rail, let me tell you. If you actually go back and analyze it just on the facts, what did Donald Sterling actually actually say and blah blah blah, it it really in an abstract sense wasn't all that terrible. It was ridiculous and it was the you know, the ramblings of a of a, an old guy who was beginning to, to lose it and you could have looked at it in that context but it has to be cast against a backdrop and the backdrop was you know here's a white guy exploiting a bunch of black athletes and talent and doesn't have the sense or the sensibility to even give them their due and recognize by telling his girlfriend don't you bring any black people in to, you know, to come sit in my seats I mean how utterly, not only ridiculous, but racist. And it sort of mm-hmm. touched a spark that hit a powder keg that blew up. I mean, it was a hot thing at the time.
1: Why do you take that job? You you seem to just constantly go into these difficult, arguably thankless positions.
2: Well, my wife says, because I, I haven't learned how to say no. I did, you know, the last thing in my you know, it was, I told you, going to... Time Warner was not something... Going to the bank in the first instance, not something I ever anticipated. Time Warner, even even City, although that was more predictable at that time. Yeah. But this was the last thing in the world that anybody would have ever expected. But Adam, I knew Adam Silver, because, you know, remember, we were team owners. It's not like I'd never run across a basketball team life. We were team owners at Time Warner. I had a basketball team. And I knew Adam Silver, and he needed some help. He's yeah. a buddy. And he said, could you help me out?
1: And, and you didn't learn to say no.
2: No, but I could help him out also. I mean, I, I, I know what I... If, if people said to me, well, what, you know, what, what, what's the key or the keys to your success? One is, you know, being a person of, of good cheer and good humor and keeping everybody else kind of coming along.
1: And you've said, Dick, you once shared this advice with me. You said, squeeze the juice from the fruit.
2: Well, yeah, you know, I said sometimes, sometimes, you know, the squeeze in worse the juice. In other words, when when something is tough, <laughs> just to put it down. But I I know what I can do and I know what I can't do and I have a pretty good instinct for for talent. So uh, I I thought I could help Adam. And he's a pal, and that kind of situation I'm good at.
1: So now you are fighting. Perhaps the biggest battle of your life, personal. You're fighting multiple myeloma. You look good for people who are listening and can't see you. You look like the Dick that I've always known. How are you doing? And how how has this fight changed you?
2: I'll start at the end of that and work backwards. Um, you become more aware of your own mortality. That is a fact, and that that modifies and changes your priorities and your agenda in terms of the things that are important to get done now in some ways but other than that it's 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 just another fact of life it's something that you assess what does this mean what's the likely path what do I have to do to stay off as long as I can um, and you do those things and then you move on I, I had I had dinner last night with a friend of mine who, I think I mentioned this to you. When I kept looking at me saying, Jesus. I said, what, what are you looking at? He said, I would have thought from talking to Laura <laughs> that you know you were laying in the street <laughs> drooling, sort of saying, help me, I've fallen, I can't get out. You look fine. You know, death is a part of life. It's a reality. Um, and nobody knows exactly when it's coming. So you do what you do with anything else. You, you assess uh, where you are and what the likely... Courses of, of going forward are you pick one that works for you and you try and get there and you know keep putting one foot in front of the other.
1: So when the book on Dick Parsons is written and the book on your life is written, what should the title be?
2: Boy, I'll tell you. If I knew the answer to that, I'd write the damn book. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I I had a working title. Which was, It's Nobody.
1: Why that?
2: Because when I, I remember when I, when I first got the job with uh, as president of, of Time Warner, one of the f- first things I did was I flew out to California to go to the Oscars. Fancy. Fancy, fancy. You know, he <laughs> put me in this big limo all by myself, dressing, you know, tucking and bibber and... Hey. Pulled up to the red carpet. They had it in, in the old Shriners Inn. Pulled up to the red carpet. And when the guy who opens the door and announces to the 200 paparazzis, you know, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger or it's Tom Cruise. <laughs> he opened, he looked around, he just saw me, he turned around He said, it's nobody.
1: That actually happened? That
2: actually happened. <laughs> just feel. think how you'd feel about getting out of the car after somebody said, it's nobody.
1: I think that's your title, Dick. So,
2: but then somebody told me it wasn't a very good title,
1: yeah, but do you, come on. It's about the content of the story. I liked it. it. That's your title? All right. All right, so final question. What do you want your kids to say about you one day? What do you want Jack and your other grandchildren to say about you one day?
0: Uh,
2: I want my kids to say that I was a good man a good father. But I want Jack to say, Grampy was cool. And I have a granddaughter, too. She already says, you know, it's so different boys and girls you know Jack would say if I'm lucky Grampy was cool Hunter would say that's my granddaughter I loved Grampy
1: Dick Parsons thank you very much for this and for talking to me 12 years ago well you were one of us it's been an honor thanks Dick Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Boss Files. I would love to hear your thoughts on this week's episode and people you want to hear from. So leave a review and follow me on social media at Poppy Harlow
0: CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store.